Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss two cost-saving techniques currently receiving substantial discussion, narrow networks and reference pricing. With me to discuss these provider and payment reforms is CEO of Avalier Health, Dan Mendelson. Welcome, Dan. Thank you for your time. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Dan's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, recently large healthcare insurers have been criticized for reducing or limiting the number of physicians in their healthcare plans. The criticism is based in part on, Ob- on the Obama administration's promise made during the Affordable Care Act debate that patients could keep their physician if they wanted, and the concern healthcare quality would be at risk if patients had reduced access or access to a fewer number of physicians and or hospitals. Another cost control technique that has emerged or re-emerged is reference pricing. This issue became topical again when in June the Obama administration announced it would at least temporarily allow for it. That is allow insurers to charge patients for health care costs above and beyond the reference price. That is above and beyond costs that would not count toward the patient's out-of-pocket spending limits which, if you don't know, are 6300 for an individual and 12700 for families. With me to discuss narrow provider networks and reference pricing, are they a win-win for both payer and patient, or, they, or do they present the patient with potential costs and quality problems, is, again, Dan Mendelson. So with that, Dan, let's start with the narrow networks issue. Great. I conveniently did not define them with too much detail. So how do they work, or phrased another way, Why are they attractive to insurance plans? Great. Well, I think for starters, uh, an insurance plan needs to be able to negotiate prices with providers. And that is really one of the core uh, tools that that plans use to control costs, to bring costs down, and to be able to make uh, products affordable to patients. Um, That's the most obvious, and I think the historical reason why uh, networks have been employed Um, But there are other reasons also, and I think in particular uh, become important in the context of health system reform, which is that when you have a narrow network, you can articulate articulate expectations on providers, whether they be physicians or hospitals or groups, um, and you can actually start to move quality responsibility and quality metrics to those groups through contracts. So, you know, there's a cost imperative, but there is also increasingly a quality imperative and an accountability imperative that comes into to constructing these more narrow networks. Okay. The other advantage, would you agree, too, is that you're promising the provider group that you're going to buy more in bulk. Sure. And that, that becomes the, the selling tool to the provider. So you, you had initially asked, and I think it's the right question, why is this of interest to the, to the uh, insurer? And if the insurer gets more predictability, lower costs, um, potentially the, the ability to control quality. And remember, you know, and this is, I think, really important and interesting relative to the Affordable Care Act. But the Affordable Care Act, one of the most significant provisions was in the Medicare Advantage program starting to pay on the basis of the star ratings on quality. And if you think about some of those star ratings measures that are now really critical for profitability in Medicare Advantage, immunization rates, nice example. Um, the health plan doesn't ever stick a patient with, with a syringe. It's the provider that does that. 
And so if you're running a health plan and you want to do well on that, on that quality metric to do the right thing by your patient and also to make sure that you have an economically viable plan, you have to have an agreement with a provider that they're going to go immunize the Medicare patients uh, when it comes to flu season. And so it's really that, that quality imperative also becomes a financial imperative for, for the plan. Now, you know, back on the, on the provider side, um, you're absolutely right that if you think about this from the provider perspective, one of the big challenges is volume. And as the healthcare system integrates and, and individual uh, physicians and, and kind of smaller hospitals are struggling with where their volume is actually going to come from. So from their perspective, having that contract and maybe some kind of a minimum volume guarantee becomes attractive, and that's why there are two parties that are in agreement to the contract. Okay, okay. And they also, the other factor is variation, and we'll, we'll get to that. Right. So payers are motivated to do this, so presumably these are cost-effective. Yeah, I mean, they, they absolutely, they, they reduce costs. I think that, that the, the quality side is the place where the plans really need to do a lot more work to both develop the value proposition and articulate it. And, and I will say that we are, we're working with a number of customers right now to help them prove that their narrow networks actually improve quality. And there's, there's very good potential uh, evidence here. It needs to be developed. Some of the historical um, plans, Geisinger, Mayo, and the like, that are very narrow network products. Kaiser may be the largest Kaiser, network, right? Right. Um, have, have cared about quality for a very long time and, and I think proven their quality consistently. There are ups and downs, of course, um, but but have proven the quality consistently. The question, though, becomes um, for a plan that a consumer buys over the exchange that has a narrow network, can the, can the health plan that's selling that prove that, that, it's, it's, um, that the narrow network is actually in the patient's interest? And that is the critical question that needs more research. And I think that proving that value proposition is going to be really important for health plans in establishing the long-term viability of the exchange markets. And it is the case studies show that 70% of exchange plans use narrow or the term ultra-narrow networks. Let's go to potential downsides. What are the potential, if not real, downsides, if any, for patients? Well, there's, there's first of all, there's transition. Um, having to move uh, from a provider that you know and love over to one that you don't know is um, it's anxiety-provoking at best, you know. Um, for some of us, it might not even be something we'd be willing to accept. You know, having said that, um, the, the, the provider that you love is not necessarily the highest quality provider. And, you know, interestingly, when you pull people and ask them whether the quality is better than average, they'll say yes. 90 plus right. percent will say that they think the quality of their provider is better than average, right. which of course is not possible. Right? Right. Yes. It's the old Garrison Keeler. <laughs> right. Everyone's above average. Right. right. Let me let me ask you on this. So this is the keep your doctor problem. Right. Um, as an aside, the Obama administration was harshly criticized when after October one, when the exchanges became real or these marketplaces became real, and people began to realize through networks they couldn't keep your, their doctor. Why wasn't the administration called out initially when they said this? Because yeah. of course every year plans reset, benefit packages change. Right. So there, from year to year, there is no guarantee. Right. You, you, would, you would think. Um, look, uh, a couple of things. We, we 
spend a lot of time predicting what the likely outcome of legislation is going to be and what the shape of markets is going to be. And I, I think that we had a pretty good sense of where things were going um, after you know, six months or so when we started to, and we were, you know, kind of we work in with the insurers, helping them to devise product. And it became clear once the law had been passed and once all the rules had been set, um, where the market was likely to go. Um, a lot of the, the rhetoric that the Obama administration created was created before that and was really not as market wise uh, as it could have been. And I don't mean that in any respect as a criticism. I think that a lot of what the president said during that time was selling a plan to the American people uh, at a time that it was it was politically very fraught with you know so so challenges. Right? Yeah, so it's not uncommon that you see some degree of of heavy rhetoric coming out. And same was true really with every major piece of health legislation that has been passed over the last decade. You know, so saw it around Part D and Part D. Uh, no one anticipated that there was going to be a fourth tier with a 30% copay um, that became standard across the entire market. No one articulated that. Nobody messaged that. The president did not come out and say, you are going to have to pay 30% of a, a big number to get your biologics. That was not how President Bush sold Part D. You know, so so I, you know, from my perspective, it's really kind of in a long line of of uh, sales jobs that 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 were you know relatively effective and and helped to launch kind of the next generation. But ultimately misfired. Okay, let me just ask as an aside too. So relative to these narrow networks, physicians can, in prior discussion about quality measures, uh, physicians can be incented if they meet certain quality metrics. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Let's move to reference pricing. Uh, this is another, or now once again, a topical cost control technique. First again, let me ask, what exactly uh, is reference pricing or how does it work? Well, I think you laid it out pretty well. It's basically saying, and, it can, and by the way, it can be for a service, but it also can be for a drug, where you say, okay, we are only going to pay up to a certain amount, or we are only going to allow up to a certain amount in your insurance coverage. And how's that calculated, just to note that? Well, you know, again, as, as you laid out in the, um, in the Affordable Care Act plans, it's basically allowing the insurer to say, I'm going to pay $1,500 for arthroscopic surgery for your knee, and if it if you want to spend more than that, it's not covered under the plan, and we're not going to count it towards the out-of-pocket limit. And um, setting that kind of a hard reference price is uh, is a way to to make consumers really understand what the costs are that they're incurring and what kinds of costs they're they're putting back onto the onto the insurer. And it is the case that prices vary greatly. I did see the statistic: an appendectomy can run from less than five thousand to north of one hundred and sixty thousand. So that's part of the insurer's reason to have the reference pricing. Let me ask you, what does the what does the research literature say about the relationship between quality and price? So if you are paying a high price, does that necessarily mean you get better quality? Right. So so the issue is that there first of all, I mean, there isn't a lot of research in today's market. And when you think about what the quality effects are, it's really a lot of speculation at this point. And when you look at the quality associated with the service delivery, we just don't really have the data 
to make judgments that are really definitive about, about whether a patient is getting better quality or not. And so if that's, they're paying more money. That's the world that we live in. And you know, that my, my comments thus far have really been oriented primarily towards service delivery, surgery, uh, service delivery, and the like. Um, over on the drug side, you know, there's increasing interest in trying to use, for example, MedPAC just very recently um, raised the idea that we should be using least cost alternative, which is a very related uh, set of policy tools, basically saying I'm only going to pay, you know, the lowest cost alternative. Question though becomes you know, whether the other possible therapy approaches are truly um, equivalent alternatives. So if you have three drugs in a class and one is less expensive than the other two, are the other two really equivalent therapies? And we don't know that either. And so in the absence of that kind of information, reference pricing becomes controversial at best. And that's really the, the um, you know, the kind of the debate, if you will. And there's the parallel to generic substitution. Yep. And look, generic substitution, I think, is a much more uh, straightforward set of policy alternatives because if there is a generic drug that is approved by the FDA and the FDA has come out and said this is the same chemical, it is equivalent, that is very different from three branded products that have never been compared to one another uh, and physicians are using them in slightly different ways and maybe even innovating on them. I mean, one of the, one of the concerns that I have about reference pricing is that a lot of the medical innovation that we have is due to the fact that physicians experiment with things. And so there might be a more costly approach to surgery that is actually preferred, but we don't even know it yet until there's it's a done. bolus of experience around it. I, I look at the whole uh, body of work around interventional cardiology, um, which you know back in the, in the late 1990s was completely experimental. Um, and the interventional cardiologists were billing using open codes uh, but they were just using percutaneous techniques to 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 do these surgeries. Same thing with drainage and ablation and a lot of the other the other uh, approaches to to surgical technique. And the minimally invasive surgeries were developed because there was flexibility uh, in in this market. And one of the things that I worry about on a going forward basis is yes, we're making the system more efficient. There's no question about it. But we have to also make sure that there's a laboratory for innovation so that clinicians can experiment with surgeries, with drugs, with other kinds of things, and, and develop the next generation of tools and techniques that they can deploy. So with reference pricing, that may inhibit that uh, ability yeah, or impetus to innovate. It could. And, you know, again, I, I think it's really important to experiment with a lot of different things in this environment. And... Uh, it is definitely the case that, that as we were talking about before, uh, you can't prove in many instances that surgeon A is better than surgeon B. And I think it's also important for consumers to start to confront that fact. Okay. So let me ask you the parallel question, the same question for reference pricing, and that is downside risk or possible problems for patient yeah. beyond the fact that they may not even be aware. This begs the whole issue That's of the biggest, literacy. The biggest issue is the awareness because if a patient doesn't know and doesn't understand, um, they're going to be surprised and that's not good for the patient, it's not good for the health plan, it's not good for the provider. Um, and that tra it's hard to achieve that level of transparency in the system because things are so complex. The provider might not know 
what the economics are facing the patient. The economics might be changing. Uh, there are a lot of, so, so communication, I think, really is the most important one. And then um, giving the patient the tools to actually make a good decision. Uh, it's very easy to tell the patient, it's relatively easy to tell the patient what the financial incentives are. It is a lot harder to communicate what the quality history has been of a particular provider. And I will say that, you know, uh, so we have 250 employees and uh, we, our insurance carrier will give some really rudimentary information, but does not give information, comparative quality information for our employees. So as an employer and kind of purveying this benefit plan, I can't say that my employees really know uh, the information that can be known on their providers. And I don't think that they are very well equipped to make a good decision based on the data. So let me just, let me push, push you on this. So you just referenced, you have a large organization, research organization, and the whole idea behind reference pricing is not only to save the patient or the beneficiary money because presumably their copay or their out-of-pocket costs would be less, but it was also to save the employer some money. Oh. So have you, just, just I'll ask more generically, have you yeah. been approached to, say, create or offer your employees a package that includes reference pricing? You know, one of the things that has been shocking to me as a, as a, you know, a health policy person and an employer running this organization that now has 250 employees is how little control I personally have and our organization has over the benefit that we are being offered. Um, we are really a taker of a benefit in this market. Um, largely because there are relatively few insurance companies that are ready to serve us. Um, price is important to us. We try to keep price low for our employees so that there's very wide acceptance of the, of the benefit. Um, and then, you know, we're also not ready to spend that much time trying to work. You know, we're, we're a relatively small organization. We're not like Xerox or IBM. <laughs> That can spend the time to have like a smart guy or a woman or innovate even, or on their behalf. Or even bargaining power, right? Right, yes, exactly. Right. We have no bargaining power. That's the uh, the cold reality. But you know, look, it's it's. Um, I, I actually that we we've, we've been very well served by our insurer over the time, and and uh, it's been it's been fine. It's been a nice long term relationship. So I'm not ragging on it. I'm more saying that I don't really have the control to go in and talk about you know what their approach is to uh, to reference pricing to tier four or really to any other uh, tool that they might want to be bringing into our environment. So let me ask, finally, we have a few minutes left, a wrap-up question. Going forward, what's your expectation for these two techniques or related others yeah. within and beyond uh, these exchange or uh, individual plan marketplaces? My, my perception of the market is that there are a lot of cost containment tools that are being adopted right now by uh, insurers and by providers that are really starting to make a substantial difference on costs. I really believe that cost trend has been attenuated largely because of uh, the Affordable Care Act, the related um, cost control provisions, the innovation that's coming through CMMI, uh, and this is all having a, a very significant impact. I, I believe that that will be shown in retrospect through analytic work. Uh, that probably a lot of your listeners are going to be engaged in, and that is the, that's a hypothesis, but one that I believe really will be borne out in in literature. Um, I, I also believe that these cost containment tools are reshaping the market so that providers are becoming more 
uh, attuned to cost. So we're seeing more physicians who are now being compensated on the basis of whether or not their drug spend is high or low. And that will affect the market. That will affect the purchase of drugs. It'll affect the prescribing of drugs. And uh, I think it will begin to change the role of physicians from really being the patient advocate to, you know, perhaps, uh, I, should, I should kind of restate that. It'll change the role of physicians to being more attuned to patient interest and cost. Um, and it's a, it's a complicated set of situations, but the, the, the patient, the, this concept of a physician being divorced from the cost constraints, I think is going away in this market and will change the way, the way things, things look. And um, the opportunity is to identify research on whether these cost containment tools work or not and whether they have adverse impacts on patients over time so that we can shape the next generation of products that are being offered to consumers. So would you say it's accurate uh, in summary that providers are starting to think more like payers and payers are starting to think yeah, more like providers? definitely a thinning of the line there and a very strong interest for both payers and providers to prove the value of these, of these new uh, innovations in benefit design. Um, and I think that to the extent that providers and payers really think about benefit design from the patient perspective, that there's a lot of potential there. Um, so that's... Great, Dan. So we're at our time boundary. So let me say thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yep, my pleasure as well.